Turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 22. We're reading verses 1 through 19. That's Genesis 22, 1 through 19. And after these things, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word together. We pray this morning that your word would do its work in the hearts of your people, that you would help us to learn and to apply these things to our lives, to understand the example of Abraham's faith and to understand and to believe more fully, more steadily in you as the God who promises and the God who provides. Lord, be with me today as I teach. May uh, my words be your words and may they be edifying to your saints. And we pray this through Jesus' name, amen. The Christian life is one of faith-fueled 
obedience. It's a life of faith-fueled obedience. One of the sad things is some people might object to that statement. And what they would object to is the word obedience. Sadly, there are many people, ostensibly evangelical Christians, who have a bit of an allergy to the word obedience. Because when you say Christian obedience, when you talk about the commands of the Lord as they apply to a believer in Christ, they hear legalism. They hear that heinous, abominable, damnable sin of believing that a man can be right in God's eyes on the basis of his own works. And of course, that's wrong. That's completely erroneous. A person, a person is justified before God, made righteous in his eyes on the basis of faith in another, and a basis of faith in Jesus Christ. But that does not rule out obedience. Let me say it another way. If Jesus Christ is your Lord, if he is the master of your life, you then are an obedient servant. The difference, though, is the fuel source. The difference between legalism and Christian obedience is that Christian obedience is fueled by faith. It is fueled by that same trust that justifies you in God's eyes, that faith in him and his character and his promises and that complete trust in him is what fuels your obedience to him throughout your Christian life. And so Jesus said, if you love me, you will do what I command you. And so the Christian life is marked by faith-fueled obedience. It's true. But wouldn't it be great if we had an example of faith-fueled obedience? You say, well, well what, what does that type of obedience in the life of a Christian, what should that look like? Who can I look to as an example and certainly we have examples all throughout the Bible, our Lord being the chief most among those who obeyed and submitted himself to the will of the Father completely. And many of the New Testament saints. But as we are in Grace Life in this series, I Love Thy Law from Psalm 119, where we're peering back into the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, and, and, and looking there because Christians can, can find encouragement. They can find and find truth still in the Old Testament. Just because we're New Covenant believers doesn't mean that there is not value in the Old Testament. And so we too should love God's law. We too should love the Pentateuch. And we find actually in Genesis 22 what the New Testament holds up to us as the premier example of faith-fueled obedience. It's Abraham. Again and again and again, the New Testament writers point back to Abraham when they're talking about faith and obedience. In Romans 4, when the Apostle Paul is talking about the righteousness that comes by faith, who's the example he gives? Abraham, who's justified by faith. And Galatians 3 calls him the man of faith. That's a good title, isn't it? Hebrews 11, in, in the, the famous Hall of Faith passage, Abraham appears again and again. It says, by faith, Abraham obeyed. And James 2 uses Abraham as the example of, of what, when it talks about faith without works being dead. In other words, that, that a living faith, that a faith uh, that is true and real, how that results most naturally in a life of obedience. Who's the example they name? Abraham. Abraham, whose faith was demonstrated by his obedience. Abraham is the example of faith-fueled obedience held up to us. And so what I want to do this morning is in this passage in Genesis 22, I want to look at three 
characteristics of faith-fueled obedience in the life of Abraham. Three characteristics of faith-fueled obedience. But before we talk about the first one of those, let's let the text set the stage for us. Let's, let's get a little bit of context of what's going on in this passage that I just read to you. Verse 1 of chapter 21, or 22 begins with, after these things. After what things? Well, the story of Abraham, of course, begins back in Genesis 12, when God calls him from the land of his father to leave his country and kin and to follow him, and that he's, he promises that he's going to bless him. And he's, going to, and he's going to multiply his offspring. Many nations will come from him. And that in him, all the nations of the world will be blessed. The Abrahamic covenant. And so Abraham leaves and follows God by faith. And of course, many things happen between chapter 12 and where we're at. But the immediate context, when it says after these things, is talking about the birth of Isaac in chapter 21 and the sending away of Ishmael and, and Hagar. And so Isaac, what we learn in chapter 21 and verse 12 is that these promises that God has, pr has promised to Abraham are going to come through Isaac. And this is important because this passage is, is concerning Isaac. He says in verse 12 of chapter 21, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And so the promise of God that Abraham has entrusted, that, is trust, that he's trusted, rides on Isaac. And then it says here back in, in Genesis 22, after these things, God tested Abraham. So what we're about to encounter is a test. This is only a test. But what kind of test is it? Well, this is the kind of test. It's, it's the Hebrew word nasah, and it's a test which means to see what, is really, what one is really like. It's like the Queen of Sheba when she tested Solomon with riddles to kind of feel him out. It's, it's like Daniel and his friends when he was tested by Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon when they tested him with the diet. And it's frequently used of how God tested Israel in the wilderness. But there's one important thing to note here. Abraham doesn't know that this is a test. This note at the beginning is for us, the reader, to understand what's to follow. But like Job, he doesn't know that this is a trial from God coming. Why does God test his saints? Why do, what's the purpose? Why would he do this? God is not like some pagan false deity trickster God of, of paganism that, that simply tortures his creatures for his own pleasure. No, God has a distinct and a good purpose when he tests. And it's true of this test with Abraham too. When God tests his servants, his aim is their good. His aim is their good. And it's true when he tests us as well. I love Deuteronomy 8.15. It says, this is God speaking of testing. He says that he might humble you and test you to do good to you in the end. To do good to you in the end. And that, friends, is this, the main difference between a test from God and a temptation from Satan. The intent is wholly polar opposite. When Satan tempts us, he tempts us to destroy us. When God tests us, he tests us to strengthen us. Which is why it says in James 1.13 that when we're being tempted, we shouldn't say God is tempting me because God isn't tempted by evil and he doesn't tempt. When he tests, he does it for our good. And so there is a good purpose at work here in this test that's about to follow. It will be to Abraham's benefit, though it will not be easy, not by a long shot. Because the nature of the test you see here in verse 2, he says, 
Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. That's a test of faith. He tells Abraham, he gives him this shocking command. Take your son. And, and it's as if, it's if he's, he's emphasizing, even in the command, how much God realizes what he's telling Abraham to do because he belabors the point about what he's asking of him. Take your son. Which son? Your only son. Isaac. Laughter. The one they named Laughter. Whom you love. And sacrifice him to me. It sounds so cruel. What is God asking of his servant in this test? To sacrifice the son whom he loves? It's almost unfathomable. You can imagine coming across the story for the first time in your Bible and be like, pardon me? He's asked him to do what now? I'm a relatively new father myself. My son just turned six months last week. Hold your applause. <laughs> I cannot fathom being asked by God to do this. That's why it's a test, isn't it? It's a test of his loyalty. He said, will you, will, you, will you trust me, the blesser? Or does your faith hang on the blessing, what I've given you in this son? And make no mistake, this is more than God just asking him to sacrifice his only son. That would be hard enough. But the uniqueness of this test is what rides on Isaac. Remember, he's the son of promise. In Isaac shall your offspring be named. What is on the line here in this test? If Isaac dies, consider this from Abraham's perspective. It means at least three things. If Isaac dies, if he's to sacrifice him to God in this test, it means at least this. One, he loses his son, whom he dearly loves. But it also means that God's promises that are to come through his son are null and void. The very thing that he has left his family and his land for and followed God will turn out to be this wild goose chase. Everything, his whole life, everything that, that he's looked to, that reward, his whole life, all of that will be as null and void. And furthermore, it would mean that God, maybe God can't be trusted because, because for me to sacrifice Isaac would mean that, that it wasn't true what, what he told me when he said that, the, that the, my, my, uh, the promise would come through him. It would mean God's not reliable. It means he's a deity not worthy of my trust. What's he supposed to do? On the one hand, he's got this command from God, very clear. On the other, he has this promise, and they seem to completely be in contradiction to each other. How does he both obey God and believe him for these promises at the same time when they seem that they're at total odds? Talk about a test of faith. And that's what makes Abraham in this test specifically such a great example for us to understand what faith-fueled obedience looks like. Because how Abraham responds to this test is exemplary in every way, which is why the New Testament authors always point back to Abraham. He's the example of faith-fueled obedience. And so we can learn from that example as well. One more note before we jump into the first point. He says, go to the land of Moriah. Did you catch that? He tells him, go to the land of Moriah. You say, well, what's Moriah? This is the first time that this, this name appears in the, uh, in the Bible, and there's actually only one other occurrence of it. So where is Moriah? Because we find out it's a three-day journey 
from where he's staying in Beersheba. So what's the significance of Moriah? Well, apparently to Abraham at this point, there was no significance. But if you looked and you don't need to turn there, but in 2 Chronicles 3.15, there's the other mention of Moriah. It's the site of the temple in Jerusalem. And what's amazing about this, we'll talk about this more in a minute, but the place where so many of those promises come to fruition, where a great nation comes from Abraham, he is asked to go and risk all of that, to venture the sacrifice of the son of promise in the place where God knows and his plan providentially, where so many of the answers to that promise will happen and where sacrifice will be made to him in the center of the great city that would come from Abraham and his offspring. So let's see, how does Abraham resolve this dilemma? What does he do? What are the characteristics of faith-fueled obedience that we find in this passage here? What we're going to see is that this quiet act of faith from Abraham will serve as our example of how we are to both trust and obey God, even when obedience is costly and confusion is high. So, Three characteristics of faith-fueled obedience. Let's look at those. The first one is that faith-fueled obedience is rendered without reservation. Faith-fueled obedience is rendered without reservation. We find this in verses three through eight. I think when you read this story, I think just about anyone naturally asks, what would I have done in this situation? That's probably part of the intent of is, what would I have done? Would I have believed God? Would I have obeyed him in this? But what we find in Abraham is his response is prompt obedience. It says in verse 3 that Abraham rose early the next morning. And I'm just thinking, I hope I would have the faith of Abraham in this situation, but I might sleep in. I might delay a little bit. I might hem and haw. It's surprising that Abraham actually, he doesn't do what he did. Remember when, when God says that he was going to judge the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and destroy them, and he goes into this bargaining thing. He's like, well, what if there's 50 righteous people? How about 40? You know, and he's whittling them down. The bargainer is silenced. The bargainer is silenced. What we see from Abraham is simple, prompt obedience. He renders his faith-fueled obedience without reservation. And so he obeys. He, he says, like I said, he, on the third day, or sorry, in verse three, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddles his donkey, and took two of his young men with him. So he brings two servants along. So, so on this journey, we've got Abraham, we've got Isaac, we've got two servant boys and a donkey. Sounds like the beginning to a joke, but this, this is no joke. <laughs> and he cuts the wood himself for the burnt offering and presumably loads it on the donkey. And they go to the place which the Lord told them. Okay, so Moriah, as I mentioned, Abraham's living in Beersheba right now. Moriah's about 50 miles from Beersheba. It's a long journey. So they're making a pretty good clip because they get there, it says in verse four, on the third day. And it says, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. You feel the, the drama intensifying. You can imagine in Abraham's shoes. Okay, that's the place. That's the place where I'm supposed to sacrifice my son. Okay. It's becoming more real. But what's he thinking? What's Abraham thinking? Right? That's what you're wondering. This, this story has a, uh, a kind of infuriating lack of dialogue. 
Because you're like, what is Abraham thinking? Why is he getting up early? Why is he doing it? You're wondering, is he debating? Is he not going to do it? Is he thinking, well, if I do it, then this will happen and this. You don't get much from Abraham at all. And so when there is dialogue, you got to tune in really closely and focus on the details because I think that there's a clue here to Abraham's state of mind. Without getting too speculative, I think we see how Abraham is thinking through this problem in verse 5. Let me read this to you slowly and, and see if you catch it. It says, Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. So he tells, tells the two young men, you guys watch the donkey. We're going to go up to the mountain. Did you catch what he said to them? He said, I and the boy will do three things. We will go over there. We will worship. And we'll come again to you. And in the English, you're like, well, is it really that, is it really that explicit that he's saying both of them are going to come back? It is. In the, original, in the Hebrew, it is plural. He says to these two young men, we are going to come back. As in, in him and Isaac, the only ones going up there. And so then you're like, well, what does this mean? What, what could he be thinking? I think there's three options. There's three options of what he's thinking here. One, Abraham's lying. Maybe he's just telling these guys, don't worry. I'm not going to go up there and, and kill my son. They're like, what? No one said anything about killing sons. <laughs> or maybe he's, doing, maybe he's lying for Isaac's sake, not to raise suspicion. But there's a problem with that. There's a problem with that. You think, well, Abraham's lied before, hasn't he? You know, when, when he goes through Egypt and he lies to Pharaoh, says Sarah, his wife, he does the same thing with, with uh, it tells, tells them that he, um, Sarah's his sister, does the same thing with Abimelech. But even those, those are deceptions, but they're not bald-faced lies like that because we find out that Sarah's actually Abraham's half-sister. So he's like, well, it's kind of true. <laughs> but you don't see these bald-faced lies from Abraham. He's not characterized for us as a liar. And the bigger problem is, what it would mean is, is that in what the Bible presents to us as one of the premier examples of faith-fueled obedience, you have the person who's held up as the example disobeying God and lying. I don't think Abraham's lying here. I don't think he's lying. Okay, so, so what else could it mean? What could it mean that he tells these two young men, I and I are going to return to you after we worship up there? Well, it could mean that Abraham's considering not doing it. He's thinking, we're going to go up there and, I don't know, I'm going to figure out a plan. I'm going to MacGyver this thing. And, and we'll, we'll sort out the details when we get there, but I'm definitely not going to kill Isaac. But there's nothing in this story that would indicate that he ever second-guessed it. Again, he's rendering this obedience without reservation. He gets up early, he goes, he doesn't object, he doesn't debate, he just goes and does it. And what we're going to see in just a couple verses is that he's about to raise the knife and he's going to go through with the sacrifice. He has every intention of doing it. So him saying this to these two young men, I don't think is an example of him lying, and I don't think that he's saying it because he's considering not going through with it. That leaves one other option. And that's this. Abraham was telling the truth. He believed by faith that he was going to go up there and sacrifice Isaac, and yet somehow they were both going to return. You say, now you're speculating. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'll show you why. Abraham believed that even if he obeys God in this thing, that God would somehow preserve Isaac, the son of promise. Flip over to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, 17 through 19. In Hebrews 11, 17 through 19, we have affirmation from the spirit-inspired author of scripture about what Abraham was thinking 
when he went to sacrifice Isaac. It says in Hebrews 11, 17 through 19, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, it's talking about this event, offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son of whom it was said through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Pay attention to this, verse 19. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Think about this level of faith that's being exhibited here. What Abraham knows is that he has, he has this promise on the one hand that God is going to bless me. He's going to make great nation come from my offspring. And in, in, in my offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And it's going to come through Isaac. God's told me this clearly. And on the other hand, he has this seemingly contradictory command where he said, you know that son of, pro son of promise I told you about? Sacrifice him to me. And he doesn't, he doesn't see how these two could possibly be joined together. How could they? But by faith, he knows that he doesn't know how that fits together, but he does know something. He knows God. And even though Abraham has no business believing, he, he, think about this, resurrection. He thinks he can bring him back from the dead, it says in Hebrews. He hasn't seen a resurrection. He doesn't have the example of Lazarus or Jesus come back from the dead. He just says, well, maybe God will just bring him back from the dead. Something I, I've never seen before, but I know that God will figure out the details of it. That is humble, faith-fueled obedience. Where he doesn't go back and forth with God. Well, well, I don't know if you've thought this all the way through, Lord. There's, a little, there's some problems with your command. They're in contradiction to your promises. He says, no, I trust God. And so I'll work, I'll, I will trust him to work out the details. And you think of yourself and your response to trials of so much smaller magnitude in your life. You say, you know, Lord, I've been, I've been praying for a job for so long. And the Lord finally gives you this job and this, this dream job. It's so wonderful. You love it. And, and it's great. You're going to work. You're getting paid. You're finally able to take care of your family again. And then your boss is asking you to lie. And you know that if you refuse to, to lie for your boss on behalf of the company, that you're probably going to lose the job. And we, what do we do? But Lord, you, 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 gave, you, you gave me this job as an answer to prayer. Certainly in this situation, it'd be okay if I bend the truth a little bit or if I don't, if I don't completely obey. I don't, I don't see how, Lord, this blessing of this job could fit together with the command for, for, for me to, to be a good witness for you in the workplace by, by being a person of truth. And we disobey on something so small. And here, one of the greatest tests a man has ever undergone, Abraham says, I don't see how this makes sense. But God does, and I entrust him to work out the details, and it's to me simply to obey and trust in faith. Because make no mistake, there are two ways for Abraham to have failed this test. Have you considered this? The first is obvious. Abraham could have failed the test by not sacrificing Isaac, by simple disobedience, by saying, you know what, Lord, you have this promise. You said it's going to come through Isaac. I'm not going to obey, or, or I love Isaac so much, I'm just not going to do it and he would have failed the test. But if you considered that he would have failed the test also, this test of faith, if he had said, I'm going to go through with this, I'm going to obey your command, I'm going to sacrifice Isaac, but I guess that means, God, that you're not a promise keeper. I guess that means that you weren't telling the truth when you said, through my, 
uh, through Isaac shall my offspring be named. It's such a narrow road for him to walk to actually pass this test. And the only way for him to do it is to completely and implicitly trust God despite the confusion, despite not understanding. Abraham had a clear command and a clear promise. How would those two work together? He didn't know, but he knew God. And so he rendered faith-fueled obedience without reservation, without reservation. It says in Psalm 119, verse 60, I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. And I think so often for us, it, that can't be said, that we delay, we drag our feet, we wait. Maybe there's something the Lord's been convicting you about lately. Maybe it's been weeks, maybe it's months, but you still are like, well, I don't know if I should obey that. Hasten to obey. Hasten to obey. Maybe there's a conversation, someone you know you need to talk to, be reconciled with. And you say, but that's going to be hard. It's going to be awkward. Hasten to obey. Be reconciled. Don't put off obedience. Trust in the Lord. Faith-fueled obedience. Let that drive you to render it without reservation. Looking here in, in verses six through eight, we have another bit of dialogue. It says in verse six that Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son. So right, they've left behind the two young men. They've left the donkey and they're about to make the ascent. And so he takes the, the wood, presumably from the donkey, and he lays it on the back of Isaac to climb up the mountain. Climb up the mountain. I think the, the allusions to Christ carrying his own cross are intentional that a Christian should see in this looking backwards. Christ's sacrifice. We'll talk about more of that at the end. But they're going up there and Abraham has the fire and the knife and then and we see Isaac ask him a question. Here's the first time we hear from Isaac. It says, and Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Good question. And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. Now his question about where is the lamb, it might have been out of suspicion. It may have just been innocent curiosity. We don't know. It's not spelled out for us. And that brings up another point is this story is about Abraham, right? It's a test of Abraham. And sometimes people make a lot of Isaac. And I, I do think that there, there is an example in Isaac of, of some humble obedience himself in being, in being willing because it says later that Abraham binds him. This is a guy who can carry a donkey load of wood up a mountain. Uh, it'd be pretty hard for an old man to wrestle him to the ground and bind him. So there is something there, I think, in, in Isaac that's exemplary, but it's not the point of the story. Uh, people get hung up on that. The point is, is the emphasis, I should say, is on Abraham. And look at how he answers Isaac's inquiry. He tells him in verse 8 that God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. This is, I think, that I don't think that this is a dodge. This is him being like cagey and stuff. I think this is what he's thinking. This is his profession of faith-fueled obedience in God. He says, God's going to take care of it. It's basically saying, I don't know how this is going to work out, but God will provide. God will provide, and it turns out to be prophetic. We'll see at the end here. But he trusts him. And there is in that, I think, this example that, that when, when God commands, he also supplies we see this in the life of the believer in, in 1 Corinthians uh, 10, 13. It says, No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. 
but God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape that you may endure. This is Abraham's trust. He says, God is going to sort this out. He will provide the sacrifice. And, and he's thinking, if it's Isaac, then it's Isaac. The Lord will take care of that. And if it's something else, the Lord will take care of that. He trusts him. And thus his faith-fueled obedience is rendered without reservation. So that's the first point we see here. It's the first characteristic of faith-fueled obedience. And the second is this. The second characteristic of faith-fueled obedience is that it is rendered regardless of the repercussions. Faith-fueled obedience is rendered regardless of the repercussions. And this is verses 9 through 14. Obedience to God is not always easy, right? <laughs> if there's any better example of that than, than this, I mean, it's not easy always to obey God. Often in the sin-cursed world, there are consequences to obeying God. I mentioned the example in the workplace, but there's other consequences. Often for obeying God as a Christian, there are social, financial, personal, even physical consequences to being faithful to God. You may lose friends. Some of you probably have family members who are estranged from you because you have sought to obey God. And you may, as I said, even lose your job over it. And I think that as we think about the trials that come on us and the consequences that we take on, we say, I'm going to obey God anyway, regardless of these consequences. I'm going to be prompt in it. There are repercussions for obedience. And, and, and when those fall on our own head, it's one thing. You say, well, I'm suffering for this. Good. I'm, I'm going to rejoice because I've been kind of worthy to, to suffer for the name of Christ. But I think that it's another thing altogether when those repercussions also fall on the heads of people you love on your own family. And that's what we see here with Abraham and Isaac. It's one thing for him to obey God and do this hard thing, but there's also his own family member who's going to suffer for it, who's going to die. John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, in 1661, he was imprisoned under an act in the, in the, by the Church of England, which was the precursor to the Act of Uniformity, which ended up resulting in the Great Ejection. If you know history there, where, where 2,000 clergymen were, were, were cast out of the Church of England. They were forbidden to preach. And many of those were people who were Puritans, names you would know. But Bunyan gets caught up in, in an act that's a precursor to this, but similar. And basically, he's, he's basically forbidden from preaching. So before he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he was a small country preacher. He preached the gospel. He did that. He was called by God to do it. And so when he's brought up on charges and he's tried, he ends up going to prison because they tell him, don't preach anymore. You can't preach anymore. He says, I'm going to preach anyway. And they said, okay, you got to go to jail. He said, all right, fine. <laughs> Paraphrase. <laughs> he ends up being in prison for a total of 12 years. You probably know some of this story. That's where he writes Pilgrim's Progress. But did you know that, figuratively speaking, the jail cell door was open almost the whole time? Meaning Bunyan could have gotten out of that predicament almost at any point because they were trying to, they're like, dude, just stop preaching. Go be a plumber. Did they have plumbing in the 1600s? <laughs> Go be an electrician. That's, that's not right either. Go be a street sweeper. Do something else, right? And you could see this be easy, be easy for him to justify. He's like, why am I in prison? Like, why don't I just, okay, I'll serve God in a different way. He's going to justify it, right? But he doesn't. And these consequences, these repercussions fall on his own head for his obedience to continue to preach the gospel. But he also had a family. 
He also had a family. He had a young wife and he had four children, the youngest of which was a little girl who was beloved to him, who was blind. And they were dependent on him. If he goes to jail, and he's basically choosing to go to jail for this, who's going to take care of these kids? And we have recorded for us actually Bunyan's thoughts on this matter, the debate that went on in his head. He recorded that. We recorded that. He says, speaking about this condition, he says, I saw in this condition that I was a man who was pulling his house upon the head of his wife and children. He knew that by choosing to obey God rather than men, by choosing to go to jail for this thing, he was harming his own family. And he said, yet yet thought I, I must do it. I must do it. He had to choose loyalty to God, even over taking care of his own family. He said, well, how does he reason through this? How does he, how does he not think that he's abandoning his family? Well, there's more. He says, I had also this consideration that if I should now venture all for God, I engaged God to take care of my concerns, meaning his family and his, his situation. But if I forsook him in his ways for fear of any trouble that should come to me or mine, then I should not only falsify my profession, but I should count also that my concerns were not as sure as if left in the hands of God. Do you hear his expression of faith in that? If I abandon obedience to God in this call to preach the gospel so that I can take care of my family, the sovereign God of the universe who takes care of everything. If I don't entrust myself to him, the concerns of my family, they're going to be less taken care of if I try to do it myself than if I choose by faith to obey God, even in the face of these consequences and thereby entrust their fate to the good God of the universe who honors those who obey him. That's faith-fueled obedience regardless of the repercussions. That's a hard choice. That is a hard choice. And this test of faith is really always, when there's a test of faith, it's always whether we will believe that God is good and his promises are true, despite these situations that seem like that if I choose to obey God in the face of this situation, it's not going to work out. It's going to be worse. It's going it's to hurt. It's going to be bad. But to choose to believe God and to throw yourself entirely upon him, that's faith-fueled obedience. So there may be great consequences for our obedience, but faith-fueled obedience is rendered regardless of those repercussions. We see this in Abraham. He understood this. He understood it as he summited Mount Moriah, knife in hand and beloved son by his side. Look at verses 9 through 11. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there. He laid the wood in order and he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. He's about to go through that. He's about to obey. But, oh, that's a wonderful but there. Oh, it's such a relief. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. You see, Abraham was going to go through with it. This is not him holding up the knife. And he's saying, Lord, now is the time to interrupt. I'm really going to do this. Stop me if you want to. No, he's about to do it. He's fully committed so much so that the angel of the Lord has to say it twice. Abraham, Abraham, to, to pull him out of his commitment to do this thing. And he says, Abraham, stop, stop. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do anything to him. 
For now I know that you fear God, seeing as you've not withheld your son, your only son from me. He passes the test. He passes the test of obedience. Lord doesn't even in this test even have him go through with the thing because what he wanted to see and what he wanted to prove ultimately to Abraham was that he had no higher loyalty in his life than to serve his master, to serve Yahweh. Even his beloved son, even the son of promise, he did not hold in a higher regard than he did God himself. And so he was willing to sacrifice all by faith-fueled obedience, trusting in the goodness of God to take care of the details. It says in verse 12, now I know. This is not proof that God learns that, that oh yeah, he's, he does, he's not omniscient, that he, that he didn't know it was gonna happen. It's accommodating language. It's him, it's him essentially saying in human way that you have passed the test. You've passed the test. What's been proven? Well, that you fear God. The purpose of the test was for Abraham to demonstrate that he revered God above all else. He did that by not withholding his son, his only son. So Abraham's willingness to give up that which was most precious to him out of obedience to God proved again that he had no higher loyalty despite the repercussions. We see in verse 13, that Abraham's word, I said that it was prophetic. We said that God will provide. Look at verse 13. He does in a way that Abraham did not anticipate. It says in verse 13, and Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its thorns, by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. It was this ram that he didn't see before that he offers up instead of the sacrifice that he was willing to give to God. This is actually the first explicit reference, the first explicit reference in the scriptures to substitutionary sacrifice. It says the ram instead of, to be sacrificed instead of. And I think there we see the foreshadowing of substitutionary atonement of what, when a Christian looks back at this passage and sees all these different, these things that like, wait a minute, this sounds a lot like what Christ has done for believers. And we're to see that there. We're to see that, that the ram is offered in the place of Isaac. And he says in verse 14, so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. In the old King James, Jehovah Jireh, Yahweh Yareh, the Lord will provide. And it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And so God did provide in that place. And it was in that same place, on that same mount, that when God does fulfill his promise, the promise of, of many, of a great nation coming from Abraham through his offspring, that's where the center of Jerusalem will be and, the, and that place of sacrifice in the temple and where God will provide again and again and again for the people there through sacrifice. And finally, outside those city walls of Jerusalem, the ultimate sacrifice will be provided in the Lord Jesus Christ, where he will be and would be the substitute for the behalf of all of those who would have faith in Jesus Christ, who would atone for our sins on our behalf. The Lord does provide. The Lord does provide. And we see it here, even in the midst of faith-fueled obedience, the Lord is the one who provides. And so, one final point. Uh, faith-fueled obedience is rendered regardless of the repercussions. Trusting that God will work it out. But it's our part to obey. Finally, and the third point is that faith-fueled obedience is rendered in view of reward. 
is rendered in view of reward. And we see this in the last verses in 15 through 18. What is it that motivates Abraham's faith-fueled obedience? You say, well, you, you told me it was fueled by faith, so it must be faith. But faith in what? It's faith in God, right? It's faith in God's character as it's revealed to him and in his promises and the promises of reward, right? In the Abrahamic covenant. This is the thing that Abraham looks to. It's the thing that drove him to leave his country. It's the thing that drove him to obey God even in this. As he was looking to the reward, as Hebrews says, even of, of Moses, the same thing, he's looking to the reward. It says in Hebrews eleven six, and without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of the one who seeks him. We too, all of us, who would trust in God. We look to the promised reward of salvation in him, of an inheritance, of the crown of life, of that well-done, good and faithful servant. It's the reward. It's trusting in God that, his, that, that he is true, that his word is true, that what he's told us he's going to do will happen. And that so often is what motivates us to continue to obey. It's because God, it says, is a rewarder of the ones who seek him. And so Abraham, that is what has driven him to this act of obedience. And we see here the reward restated. So the, the, in 15 through 18, you have the Abrahamic covenant restated, but with some intensification to it. And so it's restated several times throughout the Abrahamic narrative, the, this, this covenant with these different aspects of it, of, of him, him, many nations coming from him, of his offspring being blessed and, and in, and in uh, them all the nations being blessed. But there's an intensification here. There's an intensification. It says in verse 15, and the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord. This is unique. This is unique. This is the first and only oath of God in the patriarchal stories. When he's, when he's given these promises before, he's given them as promises, but he hasn't sworn to them like this. Not, not in the same way where he, he has made this oath, swearing by himself. And later in the patriarchal narratives, when we're talking about Isaac, when we're talking about Joseph, it refers back to this, this restatement of the covenant, this reaffirmation of it with an oath. It does it with Isaac, does it with Joseph. And look at this, flip back over to Hebrews 6, 17 through 18. Hebrews 6, 17 through 18. It talks about this oath. Hebrews 6, 17 through 18 reads, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his promise, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. You have two unchangeable things. You have the promise of God, the word of God, which can never fail because God never lies. And then you have him swearing to himself, the character of God. He's immutable. He doesn't change. So you have this lock tight promise affirmed by God swearing to it against his own self. This is a sure promise. And also he goes on some other characteristics that he, that he uh, appends to the promise is he intensifies it. He intensifies it. So not only does he swear to this the, the promises. He also says in verse 17, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring. These are the same promises that I'm going to bless you and multiply your offspring. But now he has intensified them. He's intensified them. He's, I'm surely going to do them. You think, well, what does that mean? Like, wasn't he already going to do them? Here's the point with him swearing to this and with him intensifying the promises. What God is doing here 
is he, re- he is rewarding Abraham's faith with an even surer basis for that faith. He's rewarding him, trusting in him with an even stronger foundation so that he might trust him all the, way, all the more. And that's what happens in every test of faith is we are strengthened by them in our faith. When we go out on a limb and we, as it were, take that leap of faith and trust that, okay, God's going to be true to his word. He's, he's going to keep his promise here. And then when he proves himself, our faith is strengthened by it. And so the reward for faith is a stronger basis for faith. Faith begets faith. And then also the one other thing he, he explicates here in this restatement of the covenant and the promise that Abraham was trusting in was this explication of the land promise. He says, and your offspring will possess the gates of their enemies. And this is appropriate because Abraham's standing in the place where in future generations, Joshua would begin the conquest of the land that would be promised to Abraham for this great nation that would come from him to be. And this begins to happen there. And then finally, he, he just restates in verse 18, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And we know that, and looking back, that the fulfillment of all of this covenant and, and especially of this aspect of it, and all the nations being blessed through Abraham's offspring is in Jesus Christ, who came through the line of Abraham. So that the good news, so that forgiveness, so that atonement for sin could be made available to Jew and Gentile alike, meaning all of the nations blessed through Abraham. This was the promise. This was the reward which Abraham looked to, which drove his faith, which compelled him to obedience, even in the face of confusion, even in the face of a sacrifice that seemed far too steep a price to pay. His obedience was fueled by faith in a God who promises and who rewards and who is faithful himself. You say, how? How do you have that kind of faith? How do you have that kind of faith? It seems almost supernatural. It is. It is, actually. We find in the New Testament the faith, the faith is a gift from God. It's a gift from God. We see it in Ephesians 2, Hebrews 12, to, it calls God the, the author of our faith. He is the one who, who gives it to us that we, might, that we might look on the Son and believe and be saved by him. And also in the life of the believer, it's him who grants us faith. And it's him who through providence strengthens our faith through, through trials. They might not be of this magnitude. They may be circumstances that, that challenge our faith. But through it, God is growing it. God is growing it. And so it's he who deserves all the glory, not us for mustering up the faith. It's God. And ultimately, that gift of faith has its object and ultimate fulfillment in the promises that Abraham trusted in that are ultimately fulfilled in Christ. The one who obeyed the Father without reservation, and despite the repercussions of the wrath, he drank that cup. Who carried his cross as Isaac carried the wood up the mountain, who was silent and substitutionary like the ram, the one who obeyed, looking to the reward for the joy set before him, the one who will ultimately possess the gates of his enemy when he crushes that serpent under his heel. Look on him and believe. He is your only hope. He's your only hope for salvation. If you don't know Christ, Here's your first step of faith-filled obedience. Believe on him. Do not delay any longer. Today is the day of salvation. 
Some of you may have been coming to this church for a while and you sit here and you've heard the gospel and you know it and you even think that it's factually true. And yet you said, I'm not willing yet, I'm not willing yet to give up the sin, this area of my life. I don't want to bow the knee to him as Lord. I know that it's him, but I'll get there later. You know, maybe I'll work it out uh, later on in life. Stop dragging your feet. Stop hesitating. Take the first step and believe. Repent and believe in Christ. And you who know him already, keep looking on him. If your obedience to him is to be fueled by faith, then you need to have eyes fixed on him. He is the one who will work in you to help you. His commandments, they're not burdensome. He will, he will supply for you the faith to, to continue to believe him and to obey him. But just simply obey, obey so that you, like Abraham, might serve him with faith-fueled obedience, rendered without reservation, regardless of the repercussions and in view of that eternal reward. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are faithful. We thank you that you are a worthy object of our trust, that you who have never lied, who have never broken a promise and whose character is unchanging are that sure fixed hope for which we can attach our faith. We thank you for the promises that you made to Abraham and which you fulfilled, continue to fulfill and for the gift that is in Christ, that gift that, that comes to all nations, that we can have forgiveness for sins in him. We might have a right standing before you, not by trusting in our works of obedience, but by trusting in him alone. I pray, Lord, that you would fuel our obedience by faith, that you would help us, even as we call you Lord, help us to be better servants of you. We want to honor you, Lord, and it's to you we give all glory and all things. And it's through the precious name of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, that we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from our guest speaker. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Please note, law prohibits the unauthorized copying or distributing of this audio file. Requests for permission to copy or distribute are made in writing to the Grace Life Pulpit. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit, all rights reserved.